Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look through the works of great American writers, examining 100 pages and using the Library of America as my source material. In each episode, I'll give some historical context and we'll read through chapter by chapter the works and just give my feelings and thoughts as they come up. So currently we're in the middle of a series on James Fenimore Cooper's Leatherstocking Tales, and we're in the we're coming to the end of the second of the Leatherstocking Tales, the last of the Mohicans. So if you're just joining us, you may want to go back to look at the previous episode where I describe the first three quarters of Last Mohicans. This episode will focus on uh, chapters 26 to the end of the novel. Um, but just in way of review. Uh, whether you're just joining us or you just need a little bit of a refresher, uh, this is where we're at. In the f- in the f- beginning of The Last of the Mohicans, we have a small party consisting of Major Duncan Hayward, Cora Monroe, Alice Monroe, and a psalm writer, David Gamut. They're traveling with a Huron named Makwa, and they're trying to get to Fort William Henry, where Cora and Alice's father, a commander in the British Army, Monroe, is. Currently, that fort is under siege by the French and their Indian allies. The whole novel is set during the French and Indian War. They run into Hawkeye, Chingachgook, and Chingachgook's son, Uncas, who immediately identify Magua as a traitor. They scare Magua off and hide out in near Glens Falls. However, the Huron attack a little bit later. Chingachgook and Uncas and Hawkeye escape while the whites are captured by the Huron. During their captivity, They learn that Magua hates Monroe because he humiliated him one time after he got drunk. He also has been kicked out of his tribe for becoming an alcoholic, and he's got this deep motivation to become uh, redeemed within his tribe and to get a a wife. That's why he has his eyes set on Korra. Now, Hawkeye and the Mohicans arrive, slaughter the captors except Magua, who managed to escape at the very last moment. They are now free to guide the party through the war-torn countryside around Lake George. Finally, they arrive at Fort William Henry. At the fort, Hawkeye is sent out to get some help, but is captured. And he's returned during kind of a peace negotiation parlay. Not a peace negotiation, a surrender negotiation. Hayward discusses with Monroe his plans to marry Alice. He is then given the history of Cora, who Monroe thought Hayward would want to marry. And he reveals that her mother was a biracial woman from the West Indies who he was married to for about a year. Uh, He questions Hayward about his racial prejudices. Uh, Monroe presented here as a totally non-racist character, but Hayward from the South is, it's hinted at that he might have racist reasons for not uh, appreciating Cora. In fact, Hayward denies this, and it, there's no real evidence that Hayward saw Cora as a black woman. Um, but this is kind of under the surface. Now, Montcalm arrives. Montcalm is the French commander. He wants to negotiate a surrender of the fort. This surrender is agreed to, and then the English leave the fort, but they're attacked by Huron, led by Makwa. Montcalm is unable to stop the slaughter, and in the melee, David and the women are captured. This event also seems to break up the French and Huron alliance, driving the Huron to 
affiliate with their longtime enemies, the, the Delaware. A few days after they recaptured, the Mohicans find, the Mohicans and, and Hawkeye actually find David, who reports that the women have been split up. Alice is with the Huron and Cora has been put with the Delaware, who have come to ally with the Huron. Hawkeye and Uncas agree to go to the Delaware, while David and Hayward will go to go among the Huron, posed as doctors. They get to the Huron camp and they cannot find Alice, but they do run into the Huron chief who wants them to help the, his insane and sick daughter. Uncas then arrives as a captive, and as the chief gets the story from Uncas, he learns that Uncas was captured because the person who captured him was doing a cowardly act. The coward's father then has to kill him and denies that he's part of the family breaking that family line forever. They go off to see the sick woman, and Hayward realizes he cannot help her. And while there, a man in a bear suit reveals himself to be Hawkeye. They fight Makwa, who arrives and sees through the bear costume. After subduing and tying up Makwa, they split up again. Hayward and Alice will go to the Delaware, and Hawkeye will stay behind to rescue Uncas. So that's where we are as we approach the climax of this novel. So Hawkeye is dressed as a bear and posing as a conjurer, which this gives him some status among the Huron. So the bear costume thing is actually not so much that you're trying to fake being a bear. It's, it's actually, this identifies Hawkeye as this magician, this conjurer. So he meets David and there's a comedic moment where Hawkeye tries to scare David in this bear costume and it's good for a laugh. But he eventually reveals himself to him. Now, this is a theme throughout this whole part of this novel. In fact, from the beginning of the novel, it's come up a lot, which is reality versus image. And how do you prove the true measure of a man and the true identity? And it comes down to skill. Um, and I don't know if this is almost a racial argument at the end of the day, because there are suggestions in The Deerslayer that... You know, there are deep cultural and racial differences, and this is something that keeps repeated by our characters. But still, there's a moment in the Deerslayer where the, you know, Natty Bumpo, Hawkeye in this novel, same same guy, of course, says something like, well, Chingachgook, you, you will go to the same heaven afterwards. So there's kind of a universal truth that can be revealed beyond the, the distinctions of of on Earth. And of course, uh, there's going to be a major scene later on where people's ultimate identity is revealed through their through their skills. Anyways, um, they use the bear costume as a disguise. He goes to meet Uncas. They get past the guards by basically saying that as a conjurer, he wants to scare Uncas before he's tortured and killed. They cut him loose and they put Uncas in the bear costume. David will remain behind as Uncas in an Uncas costume, essentially. And they figure even if he's found out, he won't be killed. And eventually he will be found out, of course. But he won't be killed because the Huron all think David is a lunatic due to his constant singing. And in this act, David presents himself as very brave. He's really had the most character development in this novel, going from someone who's completely inadequate in the frontier to someone who's capable of doing very brave things and to be fairly resourceful and attentive. And David, at this point, you know, rises up. And Hawkeye even acknowledges this, saying essentially he becomes part of the frontier. He's become a, a man. And again, one theme that Cooper keeps coming back to in this part of the novel is this truth versus reality thing. David is a fool in appearance, but has become truly brave. You have the bear costume, you have the Uncas costume. 
you have later on you're gonna have two people posing as Hawkeye and then the question is how do you identify them Hawkeye is called Le Long Carabine but his gun's not a carbine so there's always this confusion about uh, reality and this is made this is partially due to the frontier nature of our, of our story where communication is a bit confused from time to time news may travel slow identities are be confused no one has like a driver's license to identify themselves so there's just reports and rumors and stories about different people all right um so in chapter 27 david is found to be posing as uncas and they let him go they assume that he's just crazy something they've thought about him for a while at this point though the hurricane can regroup and try to find out what happened why did their captive get away and they go to the cave and they find the people that the heroes kind of shoved and hid in the cave while they made their escape that's the conjurer in magua and then chief daughter the chief's daughter is also there but she has died she has since died so there's an added reason here for the huron chief to to dislike and the the whites because hayward poses the doctor but could not cure their his child magua then is is rescued and you know, freed, and he reveals to the entire community that the man who captured him was none other than Hawkeye, Le Long Carabine. And it's a very dramatic scene where all the, there's still, there's a shock and surprise that this great hero of the frontier was in their midst and he was that close to them. But then this gives way to hatred and, and anger as they realize they've been tricked and fooled. And, and then they kind of organize their gang, their war party that's going to go to the Delaware and, and get their ultimate revenge. The Indians parlay on this situation. Magua raises himself to the occasion and is given command of 20 men who will seek out their revenge by ultimately seeking out the Delaware camp. It is revealed that Chingachgook is following the war party, also disguised as a beaver, so we got yet another disguise. So throughout all this again, the, the importance of disguises and subterfuge and image. Magua rises at the moment due to his eloquence. Magua is a villain, but he's revealed to be intelligent and even sympathetic to the reader. He's brought the Huron, this new ally in the Delaware. And to some degree, even though Magua dies at the end of the story and he doesn't achieve his goal of getting a wife and getting, he gets, he does achieve some of his goals. He gets some revenge on Monroe through the death of Korra. And he does raise his status among the Huron. He's a sense redeemed from the perspective of the Huron to a significant degree. So chapter 28, the Delaware camp is described here and Magua arrives. Um, he gives a long speech that describes the situation. The most important piece of information he brings to the Delaware is that the white man among them, the ones they have, they have now captured, all these people, uh, the ones who have arrived, that this is none other than Hawkeye. This leads to the organizing of this massive conference of the Delaware, which is oversaw by this aged priest named Taminid. And he's described just beautifully in this book. He actually dominates the narrative for a few pages in this chapter where you see he's over 100 years old. He's respected by everyone. He's got this wonderful clothing and these feathers. He even carries his tomahawk, even though he's too old to fight. He still has the weapons of a warrior. And what's being set up here is this massive conference in which the fate of the whites and the fate of Korra will be decided by the Delaware community. And it's we almost got the image here of a Roman assembly or, or the Roman Senate, and we're going to get the long speeches in fact, that are um, that you might expect in in kind of this direct democratic. Well, I guess Rome wasn't a direct democracy, but 
the setting in which people would give these long speeches and that's how you prove your worth is by being convincing and eloquent and, and command the audience and command the attention of the audience. This is contrasted, of course, with skills, which is something that Hawkeye keeps coming back to. And immediately in the next chapter, this is going to be a major issue. So chapter 28, 29. So the question here now is we have two, these two white men. We have uh, Hawkeye and Hayward, and they both claim to be La Long Carabine. They both announce themselves as this figure. So how do you prove who it is? Well, you have kind of the oral case. You can present your evidence orally, or you can present it through skills. So at first they both talk about it. They use language to attempt to prove their identity. And so we can start with Hayward's case, just because it's interesting in the continuity of these stories. Of course, the Lever the Stocking Tales were written not in order, uh, of at least from the character's point of view, they weren't written in order. The Actually, the first novel chronologically in the story of our character is the last one written. And so you can imagine there's been some retconning going on. And that's my a bit of my question right now is how much of this is, how much of the story about uh, his background was known in advance by Cooper when he wrote The Last of the Mohicans and how much was, was kind of added later on. And the reason I think about this is Hayward presents his case to why he's um, uh, Hawkeye. He says, that I did not answer to the call for La Longue Carabine was not owing either to shame or fear, for neither one or nor the other is the gift of an honest man. But I do not admit the right of the Mingos to bestow a name on one whose friends have been mindful of his gifts. And in this particular, especially as their title is a lie, Kildeer being a grooved barrel and no carabine. I am the man, however, that got the name of Nathaniel from my kin, the compliment of the Hawkeye from the Delaware, who live on their own river and whom the Iroquois have presumed to style the long rifle without any warranty from him who is mostly concerned, most concerned in the matter. Now, the thing here that I guess I'm not bothered by, it's not keeping me up at night, certainly, but my question is this, this idea that the name Hawkeye comes from the Delaware. Now, is this in Cooper's mind now? Because in the Deerslayer, he very, very clearly has, it's a Huron warrior who, who Hawkeye, or who at that time Deerslayer, kills. That gives him the name Hawkeye. And then Deerslayer will use this title to raise his clout in negotiations later on the novel. And then it seems then, therefore, the name Hawkeye spreads among the Huron first. Now, maybe he brings it to the Delaware and he's given it formally by the Delaware and it spread from there. But it seems from, the, from what we learn in the Deerslayer, that this name is filtered into the frontier through the, the Huron. But I don't know. Uh, maybe this is just Hayward talking and he doesn't really know because, of course, Hayward is presenting, pretending to be Hawkeye at this point. Or maybe it's something that Cooper changes when he gets to write the Deerslayer. Or maybe there's some other explanation that I don't know about. So anyways, it, it's just another level of how image and reality are very confused here. Well, without able, with words failing... It ultimately comes down to skill. And this is going to shadow the end part of the novel where there's words used to try to resolve the conflicts in the story and to give resolution to our characters, which it doesn't work. And then it comes to the gun by the end. So um, where are we? So yeah, so ultimately it's skills or gifts, as, as Hawkeye would call them, that prove the measure of the man. And at this point, Magua gives a very long, uh, after this identified that Hawkeye is who he is, 
Magua gives his case, and he gives a, a very long historical epic speech on race, and it's really fascinating. He says, quote, The spirit that made men colored them differently. Some are blacker than the sluggish bear. These, he said, should be slaves, and he ordered them to work forever like the beaver. And you may hear them groan when the south wind blows, louder than the lower, lowering buffalo along the shores of the Great Salt Lake, where the big canoes come and go with them in droves. Now, this is all he says about black people. He says a lot more about whites and Indians because that's his main interest as an Indian in, in the midst of a dying tribe under threat of white, the expansion of white civilization. But obviously, race is something in Cooper's mind as he writes this book. Now, this idea that you hear the south wind blowing and you hear the moans of the slaves, this is a bit of an anachronism. And I don't know if Cooper is being purposely anachronistic or, or something else. But slavery wasn't, was a colonial institution across the board. It wasn't just a Southern institution. Slavery certainly was alive and well in New York in the 1750s, maybe up to 10 or even more. A larger percent of the population were slaves in New York. Slavery was not phased out until the early 19th century in New York. And I think there were still slaves in the early 1820s, or at least into the, up into 1820 or so, there were still slaves because the slavery was kind of phased out. There was like, you know, slaves who were already slaves their whole life were kept for a certain number of years. Uh, children born were kept in slavery till a certain age. So there was a, a device to kind of phase out slavery in Pennsylvania and New York. It wasn't just abolished all at once. And the reason it had to be done is because slavery was an institution that a lot of people had, were invested in in those those states. So certainly it was there in the colonial period. It wasn't just a Southern institution, is my point. But we have some of this very beautiful um, metaphors for the slave trade, right? The large boats, the big canoes bringing them here, the shore of the Great Salt Lake, the Atlantic Ocean itself. And then Magua goes on. Some he made with faces paler than the armine of the forests, and these he ordered to be traitors, dogs to their women and wolves to their slaves. He gave these people the nature of the pigeon, wings that never tire, young more plentiful than the leaves on the trees, and appetites to devour the earth. He gave them tongues like a false call of the wildcat, hearts like rabbits and the cunning of the hog, but none of the fox, and arms longer than the legs of the moose. With his tongue he stops the ears of the Indians. His heart teaches him to pay warriors to fight his battles. His cunning tells him how to get to get together the goods of the earth, and his arms enclose the land from the shore to the salt of the salt water to the islands of the great lakes. His gluttony makes him sick. God gave him enough, and yet he wants all. Such are the pale faces. So we can stop here, and this is Magua on on Whitey, and of course they're presented as prolific, as traitors, as greedy, as people conquering the land, and the great enemy of of the Indians in this region. And then he goes on. Some of the great spirit made with skins brighter and redder than the yonder sun. And these did he fashion to his own mind. He gave them this island as he had made it, covered with trees and filled with game. The wind made their clearings. The sun and rains ripened their fruits. And the snows came to tell them to be thankful. What need had they of roads to journey by? They saw through the hills. When the beavers worked, they lay in the shade and looked on. The wind cooled them in the summer and winter. Skins kept them warm. They fought amongst themselves in what was to prove, and to prove they were men. They were brave and they were just and they were happy. 
If the great spirit held different tongues to his red children, it was that all animals must understand them. Some he placed among the snows with their cousin the bear. Some he placed near the setting sun on the road to the happy hunting grounds. Some on the lands around the great fish fresh waters. But to his greatest and most beloved, he gave the sands of the salt lake. Do my brothers know the name of his favorite people? And then the response is, this is the Lenape, because they're, of course, the coastal people. And this is a bit of flattery of for them. But it's a really wonderful speech that has this broad view of history. Uh, it presents Indian history, American history, really Atlantic history is summed up in this speech. In fact, thinking about this, maybe this is something you can almost teach in Atlantic history class. Um, so anyways, this speech really raises up his, his status in the, in the conversation about the future, and he gets a lot of respect among the Delaware for this. Now, Cora comes and pleads to Tamina, and she gives her two cents about this. But he's not really open-minded, and he goes back and he repeats to her about the crimes of the whites. So she instead pleads that they listen to Uncas, who's one of their tribe. And so that brings us to chapter 30. Uncas comes up and presents himself as a brave warrior, and he's about to deliver his message to Tamanen. Um, it's a conversation that's overshadowed really by the themes of the question of the decline of the Indians in the face of the whites. So this theme of like the last of the Mohicans, and, and that's being a metaphor for kind of the, the decline of Indians throughout the region, is brought up again and again. Um, I won't read the whole speech. It goes on for several pages, but I'll give you a few excerpts to get the point. Um, a Delaware, I have seen the tribes of the Lenape driven from their council fires and scattered like broken herds of deer among the hills of the Iroquois. I have seen the hatchets of the strange people sweep woods from the valleys that the winds of heaven have spared. The beasts that run on these mountains, and the wings that fly above the trees, have I seen living in the wigwams of men. But never before have I found a Delaware so base as to creep like a poisonous serpent in the camps of his nation. And later on he says, once we slept where we could hear the lake, Salt Lake speak in its anger. Then we were the rulers and sagamores over the land. But when a pale face was seen on every brook, we followed the deer back to the rivers of our nation. The Delaware were gone. Few warriors of them all stayed to drink the stream they loved. Then said my fathers, here we will hunt. The waters of the river go into the Salt Lake. If they go towards the setting sun, we'll find streams that run into the great lakes of sweet water. There would a Mohican die like fishes of the sea in the clear springs. When a Manito, Manito is ready and shall say, come, we will follow the river to the sea and take our own again. Um, and that's the, that's this historical narrative we get of this retreat to, towards the Great Lakes, right? The, the sweet water versus the salt lake. This is come, we can join this with Magua's speech, where Magua gives this broad historical kind of epic address. And, and Uncas here kind of sort of gives his own version of it. And this speech ultimately awes Tamanan, uh, who thinks he's talking to actually the spirit of Uncas's grandfather, who's also named Uncas. Chingachgu's father is Uncas. And this turns the tide against Magua. So we can see it, it's not skill in the battlefield that matters here. It's how convincing you can be as to say, you know, and how captivated you are. It's not, even, not even fully how accurate and true your narrative is it's how much you can awe your audience how much you can convince them it's it's almost like a game of rhetoric and of you know of course the the romans taught rhetoric and even i think the greeks to a degree taught rhetoric as a skill one one learned i mean the sophists give are given a bad rap in greek philosophy right because everyone assumes socrates is you know the because he's after truth not not 
con- convincing. But for a long time, the sophists were the dominant school. And what mattered was, you know, convincing people. What mattered was was getting them on your side. And that's what makes something true, not, not necessarily truth, capital T truth. So anyways, uh, this, this speech really does work. So Taminid kind of gives his proclamation and he gives his decision. And what he decides is that only Korah is the true prisoner of Makwa, the only one subject to his authority. Now Hawkeye begs to take her place, and which is something he considers, but she refuses his offer. And they, they promise her that they're going to go after her because, yeah, he might be legitimately his, her captor. It doesn't mean they can't find her later on and, and try to get her back. And Korra bravely accepts her future as a mate of Magua. So this is a high point for the character of Korra, where she accepts her fate and, and accepts her future. So chapter 31, it basically is setting up the final chase of the novel. And mostly what's going on in this chapter is preparation for this final chase. They sing a war song and they prepare the men that each companion will have. So... Um, Hawkeye is given 20 men and Uncas gets 20 men. I think Chingachgook doesn't go longer. Is He's not given a band. Neither is Hayward. Hayward eventually, I think, joins up with Hawkeye. These are the same number of people that Makwa had when he was sent off to the Delaware. David arrives, given intelligence about the positions of Korra and Magua. So again, he proves his ability. And so with that, the final chase of the novel begins. And chapter 32 is essentially the climax. It's this final chase, this final battle. You can read it for yourself if you wish. But the main points are that Uncas is killed by Magua. Korra is killed by Huron Warrior. And this whole battle takes place like on this cliff face. And it's quite beautiful. It's actually depicted in the, in, in the movie with some differences. I, I think in the movie it's Alice, not Korra. And she like jumps off into the waterfall. She's not basically slaughtered. Um, but Hawkeye kills Magua, or wounds Magua, and then Magua falls into the water. And this entire battle is played off on this side of a cliff. So all the characters have heroic moments in this chapter. Even David, who early in the novel was presented as this cowardly figure who doesn't really have the ability to make it on the frontier. But he's shown also to be a deeply moral person and willing to stand up for his friends and do brave things. Um, especially by the end. So he actually stands tall against Magua at, at a point in this chapter. But eventually Magua is shot by Hawkeye, but falls to his death. And and that's that's the final action of, of the story. The final chapter, chapter 33, is essentially the funeral for Korra and Uncas, who it said will be reunited in the quote-unquote happy hunting grounds. Okay, back to this hanty, happy hunting ground stuff. I, it's this always bothered me because it just sounds so much like a cliche about Native Americans. It's kind of the thing kids would say when they were um, playing cowboys, Indians, or something. So I actually looked it up. Now I don't know if this Wikipedia article is truthful or not, because um, I I always thought of it more as a plains Indians thing, and this Wikipedia article seems to confirm it. I'm not saying that this proves that it wasn't a Huron thing, but you know, I, I read the Jesuit relations, which were the Jesuit documents, the French Jesuit documents about the Huron written in the 1670s. And one of the famous passages from this is a description of the Huron Day of the Dead. 
And so that suggests something about their concept of the afterlife. Of course, it's through Jesuit eyes, and they're not necessarily going to be accurate. But um, here's what it says. Uh, the happy, This is Wikipedia. The happy hunting ground was the name given to the concept of the afterlife by several of the Great Plains tribes of American Indians, including the Ogallala Lakota. It is an afterlife conceived as a paradise in which hunting is plentiful and game unlimited. Lakota people believe that after death, the spirit of the deceased person goes to the happy hunting grounds. This belief corresponds with the general Sioux belief that everything has a spirit. And then it just goes on describing it. Um, and that's it. It the, the Lakota aren't here. So I don't know. They're not in this story. Now, that doesn't mean that this idea of wasn't floating around among the Delaware or the Huron or the Iroquois, but I just never heard that before. So I don't know what to make of it. If anyone has an answer to this, is Cooper just doesn't really know and just making this up or he got it from somewhere else? And we'll see. Um, we'll see when we get to the prairie if it shows up there too. So we get a couple monologues at the end, kind of these eulogies for these characters and resolving some of the plot lines. The final speech of the novel is Taminid talking about Uncas as the last of the Mohican warriors, or is it Chingachgook? I guess Chingachgook would be the last of the Mohicans, even though his affiliation is more Delaware anyways. Here's what he says. Uh, Go, children of the Lenape. The anger of the Manitou is not done. Why should Taminid stay? The pale faces are masters of the earth, and the time of the red men has not yet come again. My day has been too long. In the morning, I saw the son of Unaimus happy and strong, and yet before the night has come, I have lived to see the last warrior of the wise race of the Mohicans. So this is, a, this is just the metaphor for the whole death of, of the Indians, the whole decline of that whole civilization. Which, which I, I guess, genocide was a real part of American history. And I acknowledge Cooper, I, I praise Cooper for acknowledging that and making it such a cornerstone of his, of his fiction. But there wasn't a last Indian. They, these societies are alive and well into the modern era. They have endured. Yeah, they reached the low point in the early 20th century. Um, I think there was like 100,000 Native Americans in the continental United States, you know, in the early part of the 20th century. But the populations have rebounded. These communities have often thrived. Um, so this whole narrative does have this overhang of this idea that kind of the the Indians are leaving this continent for the white people, right? But Cooper is acknowledging that it, that these are crimes and it is violence and theft and, and all these things that contributed to that. So it's, you know, how we look at this, I think, is something we have to be careful about. I, I guess that's what I want to say. Now, Hawkeye's final monologue carries on a different theme of the book. Taminit picks up this last little Hekins narrative, but Hawkeye's final narrative is about gifts and race and this distinction between the whites and the Indians. And he says, quote, No, Sagamore, not alone. The gifts of our color may be different, but God has so placed us as to journey in the same place. I have no kin, and I may also say like you, no people. He was your son and a redskin by nature, and it may be that your blood was near. But if ever I forgot the lad, who has so often fought at my side in war and slept at my side in peace, may he who made us all, whatever may be our colors or gifts, forget me. The boy has left us for a time, but Sagamore, you are not alone. So that's nice. So despite our racial differences, despite our differences in gifts and, and nature, 
there is a universal reality and it's associated something with friendship and, and solidarity and camaraderie. And it's a really kind of touching, beautiful message at the end of, of this novel. So we get a little feels at the end. So that's the end of The Last of the Mohicans. Uh, my overall thoughts, I, I mean, I, I haven't read all the Leatherstocking Tales yet, so I'm not in a position to rank them. I'll, I'll try to do that at the end. I, I like the Deerslayer a little bit more. I thought I found the Deerslayer easier to read. I found it much more intimate and close. It's a little more preachy. And I guess emotionally, this is a little bit more meaningful, right? Because like Uncas's death and Cora's death here feel much more meaningful than I think than like Hetty's death in, in the Deerslayer. So in that sense, I think the stakes are a bit higher. And then, of course, Hutter's death and the Deerslayer is, is kind of meaningless. Uh, here, even Magua's death is touching. So I think the characterization is a little bit better in this novel. But I guess as a... Just as something to think about and talk about, I, I like the Deerslayer more because I guess Cooper's laying more on the table, I guess, overtly thematically maybe as a historian i kind of like it that way i like the arguments given on face value but this is a better novel if you want kind of that emotional punch if you want action if you want kind of a very compelling story if you like historical fiction it's much more historical because these characters are put in real historical events unlike in the Deerslayer, it's set during king george's war but it's all in the backdrop it doesn't it could be set basically at any point it doesn't really matter that it's set during that war so um, what are some of the themes in this final part of the, of the novel? Well, David becoming a frontiersman, this, this transition from being a city folk to the frontier. We have almost like a William um, Jackson Turner-esque kind of story about someone who's civilized goes to the frontier and has to learn to be of the frontier, learns from the Indians, learns new skills to survive, and then kind of becomes a new man out of that. Really racial divisions is a big theme of this last part of the chapter. It's right there at the end. Certainly solidarity and cooperation and friendship can oversee these racial divisions, but they're still there and they're never fully taken away. In fact, Magua gives a whole speech that dominates much of one chapter on this very issue. The, I think an important part of this, not well, something that's really clear by this point uh, in the story, which is Cooper's perspective on this, I think, his, his, his view about Indian history, is that the, basically that the Indians are historical. That, yeah, that's a, that's a story of decline and fading away and being replaced, but nevertheless it's historical. And this, this is going to counter a lot of the stereotypical views of the Indians as kind of unchanging, ecological maybe, or even the noble savage. All these things see Indians as essentially not historical. But that's not what Cooper wants to say, or he wants to present them as people with a history in that their societies are changing, their alliances are fluctuating, they're being affected by what Europeans are doing. And yeah, for many of them, it means decline, but also for many, it's adaptation and change. And, and so I think that's the core of what Cooper's trying to do in at least this story, less so in the Deerslayer, but in this one, you get it. Um, again, we have disguise and identity and how one proves of one's identity. And it, it comes down to um, actions. This is how one can finally prove one's worth. And ultimately, things have to be resolved with, through action and th not through words. 
But nevertheless, we have the honorable debate of words honored here. It's, it's not something that Cooper thinks is totally useless. He, he spends a lot of time doing that. And we have this near Romanesque presentation of these grand debates and discussions and the focus on wooing your audience and, and, and convincing them of your point of view. Well, so that, that'll be my final word on Last of the Mohicans. I, I will come back and reference it, I'm sure, as we look at the, the remaining three of the Leatherstocking Tales. Um, but one little point of, of news, I guess, that is uh, the Library of America just came out with their, I think it's the spring 2018 publications, and it's I think it's six books. And it's a really impressive collection. It looks very interesting. Actually, three of the volumes are science fiction written by women. So we got uh, Liangle. I, I'm not really sure how to pronounce her name. The woman who wrote Wrinkle in Time. And so uh, two volumes are going to be devoted just to her works. One is the Wrinkle in Time series, and another will be another series she wrote that I'm not familiar with. And then there's a whole book just on women's science fiction, um, which I think will be a companion to two volumes they've already published on science fiction of the 1950s. So there's that. Uh, we have Grant's Letters. Well, so it's been a while since we've had a volume by Grant. Uh, we Grant's memoirs have been published already, but this will be more of Grant and his letters. So I'm really excited to see those, especially I think his letters to his wife. And then we have another volume by James Fenimore Cooper. That's why it's important. I, I told you when I started this series that I was going to do all of the publications I have on Cooper, which would be the Leather Stocking Tales, five volumes or five books and two volumes, and then one volume of sea fiction. And there's two representative samples of that. And now we have another volume, which is going to be, I believe, some of his novels about the American Revolution. So I'm not going to promise to do that one. I, I'm going to stick to my plan of just looking at these three volumes, mostly because I, I, I'm not going to have it. Um, and I'm been kind of buying i've been purchasing library of america books pretty aggressively but i've been purchasing them kind of from the earlier part of the series trying to you know build up my collection from the beginning moving forward and i know no longer an active subscriber because i live in taiwan and it's too much of a hassle to it's too expensive basically to send to ship month by month so i make big orders once in a while so I won't be looking at that fourth volume of Cooper yet. I'll, I'll have to come back to it later. But that's just, um, if, you, if you follow what the Library of America is publishing and you notice that another volume of Cooper's coming out, yeah, it's exciting and it's good timing for me. But I'm not going to, at this point, promise to look at those two novels. Uh, but they'll there. It'll be there. And if you like Cooper, um, hopefully, if this series goes on, I'll, I'll come back to it. So that's it for The Last of the Mohicans. And I'm... The third volume of The Leather Shocking Tales, The Pathfinder, picks up shortly after this novel near Lake Ontario. It's not clear what date, and Cooper never puts a firm date. This is set in 1757, and we know The Pathfinder is set after this, but it's also set in the 50s. So maybe just a year or two years later. But it's set farther west in Lake Ontario. It has similarities, such as the guiding of people to family members as a major plot device. But it also has some distinct aspects that make it a very special and interesting story, especially we have a love affair in that, in that story. So I hope you keep reading and keep listening as we venture into the third volume of the Leather Stocking Tales with The Pathfinder. And that does it. If you have any comments or feelings about The Last of Mohicans or the film or, or my ideas about the novel, please leave them below or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. 
Um, but if not, uh, I hope you keep reading and keep listening, and I'll be back shortly with my first thoughts on The Pathfinder. Thank you once again for listening. Let Christian men take heart today, the devil's rule is done. Let no man heed the devil more, for Jesus Christ has come. But hear ye all what angels sing, how Mary made for Jesus King. Jesus Christ.